follow online and hear that bumper, but it seems a lot longer when you're standing up here like eyeing everybody down. I like that they're changing the name to Student Life, but Pastor Michael said some of us don't like being called youth. Don't worry, nobody has called you youth, I don't think, in quite some time. <laughs> so... Uh, I would encourage you, though, if you have kids in the age, age range to go to Lake Champion. Uh, I had the blessing of going to Lake Champion a number of times uh, when I was young. And I don't know if it's quite a retreat caliber camp. It's a student life camp from Young Life. And it really is great, though. They have zip lines and rock climbing walls and an ice-cold freezing lake. Um, but there is a lot of life transformation that takes place on those weekends. And so if you have kids or you are a kid in that age range, I would encourage you to really considering consider going to, to Lake Champion. It's a, a really great time, and so I would encourage you towards that. Uh, for those of you who don't know me and why I'm up here talking to you, my name is Daniel. Uh, my family and I, uh, my wife Miriam and our three girls, they just all ran out in the mass exodus that is the children's ministry at Long Hill Chapel. Uh, we've been members uh, affiliated with this church for a number of years now. We were actually on staff at Long Hill, uh, and in 2017, we were sent out from this church as international workers with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and we went to the Arab lands. We were in the Middle East for almost seven and a half years now, and uh, serving overseas, we've been involved in church planting, in community development, in theological education, and uh, most recently, uh, some of you may know, our family has been evacuated out of the region where we were staying for security reasons. Uh, if you follow the news, things in the Middle East are not always stable, uh, but in this case they were particularly unstable, and our family was asked to take a time uh, in the U.S. while we sought the Lord's wisdom uh, as to when it was an appropriate time for return and what might be next for uh, service. And so we are here uh, speaking at some different churches, giving updates about what's going on overseas, as well as still carrying our roles uh, forward. And so I'm still serving as the director of the Christian Alliance Institute of Theology. And praise the Lord, I'm, I'm happy to say we have record enrollment this semester. Uh, and so even in the midst of conflict, we've been able to have more and more students come to be trained up uh, to be Christian leaders, pastors, missionaries, church planters in some of the most unreached countries of our world. And so we have students uh, from as far east as a country I won't say because this is live streamed to all across countries that I won't say because this is being live streamed. Uh, but if you can imagine those countries and students that come uh, to where we serve to be trained up and sent back to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to see more people reached for Jesus. Uh, it's really been such a blessing for our family. And it's only been possible because of the prayer and support that Long Hill Chapel has offered to our family. And so we're here first and foremost to say thank you. Uh, thank you for the support that you've shown our family these past seven and a half years. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for the encouragement. Thank you for the blessing that you all have been. Uh, because really, uh, the ministries that take place there are an extension of your ministry here. Uh, we like to think that Long Hill Chapel has its fingers, its imprint all over the globe. And one of the places is throughout the Middle East because of your support. So thank you. Um, today, we're going to continue looking at the book of Romans. Uh, Pastor Michael came up with a very clever title, uh, Romans. <laughs> and so we're going to keep going through with it. Uh, but today, particularly, we're going to be looking at 
uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. And so if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn. I'm just going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to read this whole block of Scripture. It's uh, 14 verses. It's a bit long, and it's a bit dense, but I always say it's really important to hear the Word of God uh, because it is more powerful, alive, life-transformative than anything that I could say, uh, than anything that any of us could say. We believe that this is the very words from God to us, and so we're going to read the whole block of Scripture, and then you can tune out if you want to, because you've heard the most important part. So let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it can penetrate bone and marrow, that it can transform a life like mine. So Lord, I pray that as we read your word today, that you would continue to use it to transform lives that you would call us from darkness to, no, to life, from sin to newness of life, to transformation, sanctification, to life in you. And Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in the reading of your word, that you would be glorified in what is said here today. And if there is anything not of you, that it would fall away. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So I think it'll be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read here from my Bible. We're going to start with verse 1, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, die, who died to sin continue to live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have been buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead but to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. So the last few weeks, as we've been speaking through the book of Romans, we've learned a few things. First, we learned that Paul, the Apostle Paul that wrote this book, is writing to a mixed audience, a new church in Rome, a majority Jewish church with some Gentile believers, and they're having some disagreements, some challenges about what it means to be the body of Christ, of what it means to be a local church. How many of you have experienced some challenges in what it means to be a local church? Sometimes just little problems seem to arise. Uh, as you might remember, one of the ones that Michael loved to talk about was circumcision. That came up more times than is comfortable maybe to talk about, literally come an uncomfortable thing to talk about. But he broke it into two categories, right? That in, in the church in Rome, you had the rule keepers or the rule makers, 
and the rule breakers, right? And so the rule makers, the Jewish people, they saw Gentiles coming to faith and say, okay, now you have to start acting like us. Do the things that we were doing. Follow the Mosaic law. And the Gentiles are saying, we, we, we don't really want to do that. And so Paul writes, and he, he says that we're, we're freed from the law. And we're freed, we're justified. That justified kind of fancy word. That means we are found acceptable just as we are before God. And we're freed and justified against the Mosaic law the ritual law that we find in the Old Testament, but also against the natural law. So this is in Romans 1, where it's talking about everybody's aware that there is a law that we're meant to follow. Everybody recognizes that there's kind of this social way that we're supposed to live, this general morality. And Paul says that in Christ, we're freed against that. And we're also freed from our own human nature, our, our striving and our effort. Against all of these, we have been justified. We have been set right before God. And he kind of sums up everything, I think, very well from what he's talked about in the first five chapters. In this verse, chapter 5, verse 7, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I have that says verse 7, but I actually think it's verse 6. Let me check real quick. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I'm sorry, that's the wrong reference. It should be 5, verse 6, if you are taking notes. Christ died for the ungodly. Look at your neighbor. Tell him you're ungodly. You are ungodly. That sounds kind of harsh, right? Christ died for the ungodly. But what Paul has been saying up to this point isn't that we are all terrible, terrible people. Not that we're all like dumpster fires of personalities, but that God is a perfect standard. God is set apart as holy other, and none of us reach that standard. You are ungodly. I am ungodly. But while we were in that state, at the right time, Christ died for us. He justified us. He set us apart as different. And Paul, up to this point in the first five chapters, has been building up this argument that you no longer have to worry about the law or you no longer have to worry about your own efforts. You don't have to be a rule maker and you don't have to worry if you're a rule breaker. God in Christ, his grace is sufficient for you. And that is a wonderful thing. But Paul, I think, knowing kind of how the trajectory of this argument was going to go and knowing what kind of mental challenge this might present leads us beginning in chapter 6 in a change from talking about being justified our new status before God to being what I call or what the theological term would be sanctified sanctified is a really fancy word to mean being made into a better character to becoming a better person like the person of Christ and Paul's argument after chapter 5 into chapter 6 is less about now who you are from your past your sins are washed over and now who we should as a church be becoming who are we to be because pastor Michael said that he is a he's he's a a rule maker he likes people that follow the rules he's a goody two-shoes Sorry. <laughs> I am not. I am on the rule breaker side of this spectrum. And part of me thinks that's maybe a little bit what makes me a good missionary or an effective missionary. You kind of have to like push the lines of what's allowed legally in the country that you're in. You have to push the bounds a little bit socially as to like where you fit in, where you don't. Sometimes it's fun to push the boundaries. Anybody else out there like me, a little bit of a rule breaker? Uh, some, I don't know, Chatham, New Jersey, you guys are all like, let's button our top buttons and be a little fancy. That's okay. But for the rule breakers, man, I don't have to follow this Jewish law. 
I don't have to worry about the natural law. I'm just set free just as I am justified before God. Their response is kind of ironic. Paul foresees it. What then shall we say? Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? This is like a great question, right? This is like the first thing that pops into my mind. I can do whatever I want because Jesus already forgave me. So let's start throwing some parties. Let's have some, like, we can highlight Christ's uh, mercy all the more if we can keep screwing up. And there's three questions over the next, over the chapter, verse 6, where Paul is kind of addressing this. So in the first one, verse 1, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. But in the same, you see in verse 15, what then shall we say? Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? Same answer. By no means. And then in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, what then shall we say? Are we to say that even the law is sin? By no means. But I think there's an important distinctive that needs to be made between verse 1 and 2, which you have there, and verse 15. And it's the difference between nouns and verbs. How many of you hate parsing sentences? I hate it. When we learned Arabic, I had to relearn all English grammar because I had intentionally forgotten it. Now my daughter's in third grade, and she's starting to do things where she's like, okay, underline the noun, circle the verb. She hasn't gotten like, to direct and indirect objects yet. And th- I can't, I'm dreading the days when she brings that home for homework because I don't want to do it. But there's an important difference between a noun and a verb, right? A noun is an object, a person, place, or thing. You should know this if you play Pictionary, maybe. And a verb is an action. It's what's happening. Oftentimes, we think of sin as a verb. I did something I wasn't supposed to. I sinned. I did a sin. It's like a verb. It's an action. It's something that we're supposed to, not supposed to do. But in verse 1 and 2 of this chapter, Paul does not use the word sin as a verb. He uses it as a noun. Are we to continue in sin? Sin is actually a noun. It's a category. It's not an action in this case. And that makes a really big difference to how we understand what it means to not be in sin. See, when Paul is addressing this, he breaks down his questions in kind of a threefold order. The first, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin, the noun, that grace may abound? And he addresses that first, and then after that, in verse 15 later, is when he gets to the verb. Are we to, uh, should we sin, or are we to sin, take action in sin, because we are not under the law? The answer is the same, but it's a big difference in how we understand the process of what it means to be sanctified or made to be in the character of Christ. And so today we're going to look at sin, the noun. What is it? What does it mean to say that sin exists as a category and it's something that we were found in? Well, it's a little hard, I think, to quantify or to characterize because sin isn't quite the idea of saying like, okay, we are in the church. Like, it's a physical building. We can see it around us. You are in a family. You're sitting with your wife or your children, and you're in a family. What does Paul mean to say that we were in sin? He says it a few times in the previous chapters in Romans that when we were in sin, when we were in sin as a noun, And the reality, what he talks about just before the beginning of chapter 6, is the idea of Adam and the fall of Adam. That Adam, when he was in the garden with Eve, he and Eve sinned, and sin entered the world. And sin became this thing that started to take over. 
it wasn't just a singular action. It was a singular action that had consequences that now we as the human race are born into. And I know this is true because I've had three kids. And in a unique way, as much as I love them, they are born into sin. Have you noticed this with your kids? Have you ever seen them do something that is so mischievous or so conniving that even me as a rule breaker is like, where did they get that? Right? It's just like, it's like a part of who they are. They, they, they hide things. They do things that they're not supposed to. Actually, for about like two weeks, Miriam will say, I, I was missing my wedding ring. And she was not pleased that I was missing my wedding ring. And we turned the house up and down and over and over. And then later, Abigail was looking for like a, a pair of snow gloves in the basket where we keep our snow gloves. And she couldn't find her one glove, so she dumped the whole basket out. And sure enough, when she did, we heard tink, 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 tink. And Margaret looked over and just ran. <laughs> right? I don't know what had gotten into her mind to, to take something that didn't belong to her, to hide it for that long. And then when it was found to know, like a guilty puppy, I better get out of the room because I'm in trouble. She even as a two-year-old girl, is in sin. It's a part of who she is. It's a part of our world. And Paul realizes that, that we are in sin. But there's a significant change that takes place when we are found in Christ. Paul says that we move from being dead in sin to being dead to sin. This category that defines our world, this category that defined our life is no longer the primary thing that defines who we are. That noun, that category that says we are found in this, that we are identified in this, that the best our world can hope for is getting a little bit better because sin rules in us is no longer the case in Christ. We are dead to sin. And so... Are we to continue in that sin, in this world of sin, this life in sin, just so that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. By no means is an interesting way to answer this question, because it's not just like quite saying no, and it's not even quite an emphatic no. It's a holistic no. By no means, no matter which way you look at it, there is no way that if you are found in Christ, your life should be defined by, characterized, or under the dominion and the ownership of sin anymore. You have been set free. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And what Paul's saying here. It's not the verbal sin. It's not to say, to say that we're now going to be living these perfect lives. But it's saying that you will no longer be owned by sin. Maybe you've had a pattern in your life. Maybe you've had a, pam, a pattern in your family, a sin, a characteristic that has defined your family generation after generation. Some of us come from families that are just riddled with addiction or infidelity generation after generation of sin and it feels like it owns who we are maybe you've had this in your own life and you've struggled with uh, with lust or with addiction or with workaholism i don't know how to say that word and it's taken and you're it feels like it owns you that you're just drawn to it time after time after time and paul's saying look we're not going to get it perfect but you don't have to have that rule in your life 
anymore. Do not continue in it. We can go to the next slide. This is, I called it a metaphysical reality. That's a fancy way to say that it is a status outside of ourself. It is something beyond what you have done or even what you may feel or what you may think about yourself. This is a status that is set before the throne of God that you, if you are found in Christ, are dead to sin and there's nothing you can do to set yourself back under its rule. It's been crucified at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a present reality that has the opportunity to rule and reign in your life if you let it. You can be dead to sin and not have it control you anymore through the power of Christ Jesus. But it's not necessarily that easy to walk from this metaphysical or this head knowledge, this, this truth reality that Paul, Paul lays out, to living it out in practice, to understanding what it looks like. And so I have a little bit of a game that I wanted to play. And so we can go to the first slide. I call this game Mammal or Not. Good game, right? And so we're going to look at a couple animals, and we're going to say whether they're a mammal or not. Easy enough. First one's a moose. Raise your hand if it's a mammal. Raise your hand if not. Everyone says mammal. Okay, next one. Elephant. Mammal. Not. Good, everybody knows that one's a mammal. Next one. A duck. Mammal. Not. A couple hands went up for mammal. It's, it's not. <laughs> I was hoping those ones were going to be the easier ones. Okay, next one. Mammal. Hard to see a little bit. Not. Oh, that one is a mammal. Even though it's being born of an egg. There's a few animals, mammals, that, that do lay eggs. And that one's one of them. You can kind of see the bill. That's a platypus. Next one. Mammal. Not. Yeah, it's a mammal. It is. Next one. Mammal. Ah, no, it's not. Come on, guys. A penguin. <laughs> Next one. Mammal? Uh, not. That one is a mammal, too. It's, a, it's not a lizard. It's a, called the, like, penguin or something like that. I had never heard of it before, but I found it online and thought I'd trick you. <laughs> I think that was the last one. I don't know. Are there any more? Oh, yeah. Mammal or not? The orca. Mammal. Not. Yeah, that one is a mammal. It's actually, a, it's categorized as a dolphin, which is weird. Uh, it's a very big dolphin. Uh, but yeah, orcas are, all, actually whales in general too are also mammals. But So the point of this exercise was to make you feel silly. No, it's actually, the point of this exercise was to highlight the idea that depending on what you consider to be a certain category and what you believe to be true about a certain category will impact how much you understand it. So, if you view mammals only as furry little animals like otters or, uh, I guess people aren't very furry, but land-dwelling animals that birth their young naturally without any kind of egg and have certain characteristics, uh, walk on two legs, four legs, whatever. You, you have somewhat of an understanding of what a mammal is, 
but not a whole picture of what a mammal is. There's a couple of you that maybe got some of those questions wrong. The, guy, the couple people that think a duck is a mammal, really off base. <laughs> but there's a truth, a reality that says if you don't understand fully what a mammal is and all the categories that fit within that characteristic, you actually don't know what a mammal is. You've seen pieces of what a mammal is and kind of like know how to put the puzzle a bit together and so you can get kind of classifications right, but you actually don't know what a mammal is. No offense, I didn't either. I got some of those wrong. The truth is that that's the same case for the gospel. A lot of us carry with us a piece of the gospel, especially this piece that we have been justified by faith alone, that we are set right by our past sins through Christ's sacrifice, and now we have this eternal status that we are, when we die, going to go to heaven, that we are going to get to spend eternity with God, that we are forgiven for our sins. And that is true. That is certainly true. That is gospel good news true. But that is not the whole gospel. The whole gospel that Paul begins laying out here after the first five chapters, moving into the sixth chapter and beyond, is that your life is not only different for eternity in heaven, your life is not only set free from your past, but it has to make a practical difference now because you are dead to sin. Your life is transformed now and can lead to a new kind of living. And if you haven't experienced, and if you haven't lived out that aspect of the gospel, it's like the case of a mammal. Maybe you don't quite get what the gospel is. Maybe you don't quite have a picture of the fullness of the good news. And Paul seems to be saying in this chapter and beyond, if, if, if you don't get all of this, there's a real reality that maybe you've missed what, what actually makes it gospel in the first place. What makes it such good news? Because we're not just thinking to eternity, we're thinking to now. And Paul is saying we can live free from sin now. We can live free from the dominion of sin now. For if we have been united with a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's true. We know that our old self was crucified with him and that our old body of sin might be brought to nothing. That's true. But he also says that we are called as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that now we may walk in newness of life. We are called to walk in newness of life. And so we can go to the next. I, I called that, you can go back for a second. I called that resurrection theology. Oftentimes we have what I would call salvation theology. We believe in salvation, that Jesus died from the, uh, and then he rose, and one day he will return, and that we have salvation in his death, and that we have everlasting hope. But do we believe that resurrection life is available to us now, and that it can set us free from the bounds of sin and death in our world now, that it can be a transformative kingdom that brings freedom to Chatham and Madison and New Providence now because if it can that is good news 
So how do we move, though, from this metaphysical reality, this kind of like head knowledge that sure, we're set apart, sure, we're different, sure, we're justified, to living out? And Paul says kind of that there's two things that we have to do. You can go to the next slide now. I, I called it a lived participation. Paul uses two different uh, ways to express it. He says... In verse 11 especially, I do have these, actually, you can go to the next slide if we do. Uh, in verse 8 and 11, there we go. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And he also says in verse 11, And so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. Um, there is an aspect to which we have to choose to participate in this knowledge. That we have to choose to live it out in the way that we see the world, in the way that we see ourselves. Uh, I, I liken this to the idea that I love sports, but my body doesn't love sports as much as it used to. And I have, I have the head knowledge of this. Like, I know I can't do what I used to be able to do when it comes to sports, conceptually but somehow that jump of like oh I don't know kind of like the metaphysical reality the supernatural uh, like super beyond me reality that I can't do the things that we do doesn't translate to the way that I want to live my life we were in Jordan a few months ago and we went to a children's museum and at the children's museum they had like one of the speed pitches for baseball you know those where you like has the radar and tells you how fast you pitch and I used to be able to throw the ball pretty fast and I walked up to the thing, and there was a thought in my head like, dude, you're old. <laughs> but my heart did not let that take root. And there was a still in me like, no, you can still throw 80. You can do it. And so I picked up the ball and threw it as hard as I could. Didn't stretch it all first. Ball went about 75 miles an hour, and my shoulder like hit the ground. I didn't participate in the reality that I knew. Like, I knew I couldn't do it, but I still willed. I wanted to be able to throw the ball hard like I once could. And a lot of times, this is the reality that we have when we live out the Christian life, that, that ethereally or, or theologically, we'll say, yeah, we're justified. Yeah, we're supposed to be sanctified. We get it, we get it. But in our hearts or in our minds, we still have this aspect to which we're not quite willing to practice it, to live it out. We still let sin have its reign in our life. We still try and throw the ball like we're a kid. And so I think the practice that Paul is trying to put here before us, he's saying we have to believe that we live with him. And you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so I'm trying, I'm trying to practice this in my daily walk with Christ because I'm not living perfectly and I won't be, but I'm striving to do better and better. But what I'm trying especially to do is to always let sin know in my life that it does not reign. And so there are days where sometimes it's not even until after the fact. Like I did something that I shouldn't have done, and I thought something I wasn't supposed to think. I said something I shouldn't have said. And after the fact, I have this in my mind, ah, you're still such a bad person. And I have to choose to say it. Sin does not reign in my life anymore. It doesn't own me. And eventually that practice, it can build towards, even while you're sinning, in the process of sinning, you say, this doesn't own me. 
And bit by bit, we can even begin to do it before as we feel this urge towards sin, towards selfishness, towards fallenness, and begin to say before the action, this doesn't own me. And that, I think, is what Paul is trying to say when he says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Consider that category gone. And so I encourage you, when you feel that temptation, when you feel that leading, or even after you've done something you shouldn't have done, when you've verbal sinned, when you, not verbal like spoken, although maybe, but verb-like action sinned, say it. Say the truth. This does not own me. I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so you could begin to take the metaphysical reality and bring it down into your mind and in your heart, and you'll start to practice it, and you'll start to practice it. And Paul says, do you know what happens after that? After that is when your hands start to get dirty, where your feet start to get involved. And he says in verse 12, therefore let not sin reign in your mortal body or make you obey its passions. Don't present your members as sin instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and then present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, we live in such a meritocracy world where this is always the opposite way around. The first thing we do is the actions. If I can do the job well enough, if I can work hard enough, if I can earn it, then I'll get the promotion. Then I'll get elected. Then I'll get whatever it is. Right? That's the way our world works most of the time. It's action bears results. And then results get imputed with status. That's the way kind of, I don't know, if you have a regular job at least, that's how it seems to go. But Paul says that in the economy of God, it is the complete opposite. You already have the position. You already have the stature because of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Therefore, all you have to do is own it. Put it deep within your heart. Believe it and hold on to it. And then once you understand your character in him, once you know who you are, once you know that you are free, then and only then can you begin to put your hands and feet in the right direction and set them apart for things of righteousness because you can't do the righteousness on your own and help hope 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 that it gives you the status or hope that it gives you the righteousness you want it doesn't work that way it all comes from christ jesus i like i want to bring up just kind of the last thought Verse 3. I'll read it from verse 1 again. He says, What thou shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. That's not who we are anymore. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Those are two, like, kind of rhetorical questions that Paul asks. One, he answers to himself, like, by no means, of course we can't. And then the follow-up to that answer is how— this is a rhetorical question based on why we shouldn't live in sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it, i.e., we can't? And then he asks what for a long time I also read as a rhetorical question. But the more I read this scripture and the more I think of it, I don't think it is, actually. He asks two rhetorical questions, and then he asks this. Do you not know— that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So I'm asking that as a non-rhetorical question to you today. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
And then he goes on to explain what that means. And that's why I know it wasn't a rhetorical question, because he has to break down what it means. He says, we were baptized, therefore, uh, with him in the baptism of death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the question for you today, the question you need to consider, the question you need to think about before baptism Sunday next week is, have you been baptized into his death? Have you been set free from death to life? Have you broken the chains and the dominion of sin in your life? Have you overcome the world through the power of Christ Jesus? Do you not know that if you've been in that water, you've been set free? And if you haven't been in that water, do you know that that means you're still sitting in the death of sin? That you have not been set free? Christ died for you. He died to set you free from your ambitions, from your striving, from your efforts, from your own righteousness. He set you free from the struggles of this world. He set you free from the difficulties and the challenges. He sets you free from the sin patterns of your family. He sets you free from the sin patterns of your own life. He sets you free from the fallenness and brokenness that we experience. And he sets you free into newness of life. And it's not just an ethereal hope for the kingdom that's to come. It's a life that transforms now. You can walk in newness of life. And so if you have not, I encourage you, talk to Pastor Michael, talk to Pastor Andy, or just wear your bathing suit next week. Get in the water. Get in the water. But remember, if you have been a part of this, if you're part of the community of God, if you've walked in this newness of life, there's a really good reason why Michael and Andy don't just hold you underwater. One, because then we'd have a lot of cops show up and, like, you guys need to breathe. I get that. But beyond the actual practicality of being held in the water and not being able to breathe, there's a reason that we are brought up again, right? It's because we don't sit just with Jesus in his death, the death that conquered sin, but we also raise with him to new life. And so for you today, if you're a part of Long Hill Chapel, you might know that that is true as a metaphysical reality, that you have been raised to new life. But do you know it materially in your life? Do you, even when you sin and even when you falter, say, sin has no power over me. Sin does not own me. I am set free in Christ Jesus. And if you know that, and if you can own that, have you begun to position your hands and your feet as members for righteousness so that every step you take, every breath you make, every voice you speak, everything your hands set to is set forth for the purpose of Christ's righteousness so that the world may see and know that death does not reign in this place. But we are a people who walk in the newness of life. Because if we can live that, if we can show that, can you imagine the implications for our community? We could see God move in such a new way, such a powerful way, because we live in a world that is hungry for life, that is hungry for purpose, and they're tired of trying to do it on their own for striving and failing and striving and failing. And we have a message that it is not your efforts alone. It is not at all what we can do, but we have been justified even while we were ungodly, and we are now on the path of being raised up, being sanctified, set apart for the purposes of God. You have a holy calling. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to unfold what that means and how we live it out. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you that we have been baptized in your death, that we have been down in the grave with you. I thank you that in that our sin nature has been put to death, that it no longer rules and reigns in our life, but instead we are free by the power and grace of Christ Jesus. But Lord, I thank you too that when we've come up out of the water, you have not left us still and waiting and uncertain. You have not left us in continuing in sin that we may keep on living the way that we were living, hoping that it gives us some kind of fulfillment or purpose when we know that it doesn't. But instead you have called us to holy living, newness of life. Lord, I pray that Long Hill Chapel would be a church defined by newness of life, holy purpose, from our heads to our hearts to our hands in everything that we do. When people would look and see, they would say, that is a people transformed, empowered by your spirit. And that from Madison and Chatham and New Providence and Morristown all the way across the expanse of your globe to the Arab lands and beyond, people would see the power and truth of the gospel, the good news, and they would be drawn to it. And that they too would have the boldness and the courage and the calling and conviction by your spirit to get in the water. Because you are the source of life. You are our Father, the one who offered his Son. And so we thank you and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.